Would you join me in prayer? Father God, anytime we come to your text, we come with humility. We come hoping and praying for your word to fall upon us, for us to be recipients of it like the land receives the rain and the snow. Because your word nourishes us, it gives us what we truly need. And in response to that, we want to live faithfully. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit now to come into this time. You've been here the whole time, but we ask especially that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit would enliven this time. Fill us with joy as we see more and more of who you are reflected in your word. May the words of my mouth and the things that we all think about in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to tell you a story. It's from when Jill and I were dating. So we're going to go back in time about 10 years ago. Uh, We weren't married yet. I was working at a church in Gig Harbor, Jill's hometown. I was doing youth ministry and was absolutely the lowest man on the totem pole. Jill had moved back to her hometown to start grad school. She'd finished up college. She'd moved back. She wanted to get her master's degree. And so, as is often the case, the job that she found at the time was at Starbucks. So she was working at a Starbucks, and we met through a conspiracy of friends. This is a small town, so there's always a conspiracy when single people move to town, like, oh, you should meet so-and-so, you should meet such-and-such. So that conspiracy brought us together, and I found out she was working at this Starbucks, which wasn't too far from where I was living at the time. So, of course, when you're interested in someone, you go hang out where they are, especially if they're at Starbucks. So I would go there uh, on her lunch breaks, and she was taking really any shift she could. And so the lunch breaks would come at like 10 in the morning, or 4 in the afternoon, or 8 o'clock at night, or whenever she managed to get out. And so we've been doing this for, oh, about six months. We've been dating for about a year. And we're at that point in our relationship that those of you uh, who are married, those of you who are in dating relationships, you may be living in this tension right now. There may be some elbows being thrown around. We're waiting for those three words. We're waiting for the three words to come up that everybody's waiting on at a certain stage in your dating relationship. If you know the three words, say them with me, I love you. You're waiting for the other person to say that, or maybe you're waiting for the opportunity to say that. That's the stage of the dating relationship we're in. So I go meet her at Starbucks. Uh, We uh, had a really wonderful variety of options to go and grab food on her lunch break. There were exotic restaurants like Taco Bell and Ivers and, I mean, you name it, right? It was just this wonderful parking lot community. There's a pho restaurant. So we go across the street and we get pho. And we're sitting there talking, and this is hard to believe, but I said something funny. And then she said this. I'll never forget this. She got this smile on her face, and she kind of leaned back in her chair, and she said, oh, I love you. Right, and just like that casual, like you would say to a friend maybe, like, oh, I just love you. You're just the sweetest thing, right? Bless your little heart. But it was, I love you. Okay, and so what happens right after that? I I asked Jill if I could tell this story, and she said, okay. So no worries about that. She said, oh, I love you. And she, like, ran to the bathroom. (laughs) Like, got up and was like, boom. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, that just happened. I didn't have to do anything. She ran to the bathroom, and I'm kind of sitting there for a minute, sort of collecting my thoughts, like looking at my pho, like, okay, this is not what I was expecting. She goes to the restroom. She comes back, still kind of red, but smiling, right, like, like happy. And she goes, did I just say that? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you did. And we're like, this is great. That's kind of our way into this stage in our relationship. 
Just knowing that somebody else loves you is a game changer. It changes everything. Because it means you can be vulnerable. It means that this thing you've been working at, this relationship you've been building together, that there's something to it. And it's part of the reason that when love goes out of a relationship, when things like divorce happen, it's that much more painful. Because it's such a sacred thing to say, I love you. Now, I share that story because it's so joyful and it's so exciting, right? Like, my heart's even fluttering a little bit from, like, sharing that story because it's so great and it's such a wonderful moment in our relationship. But I wonder where that feeling goes when we start to talk about love as it relates to God. It's not that that feeling disappears, but, I mean, I'm guilty of this. We so intellectualize love as a theological concept, as something the Bible talks about, so we should study it, we should, you know, develop all these things around it that we forget, I forget, how valuable it is to feel loved by God. I was with uh, some friends, and we were having a conversation, and as is the case sometimes, it, it turns theological. And I started to just, we were in the conversation talking about, how do you love God? Like, what does that even mean? And this friend of mine very plainly just said, I don't know that I've ever gotten that. Like, I don't know that I've ever really, and again, he's going the intellectual route, I've ever really understood what it means to love God. Like, how, what, is that a feeling? Like, is it a set of practices? Like, what? And I love that question. And that question stuck in my mind this week as I studied the scripture. How do we love God? Now, there's a way, uh, those of you that are, were at the leadership summit heard a talk about how to how things to death. Like, you just keep asking how and how and how. We're not going to how the love of God to death. But we are going to talk about what it means, some principles related to it, and then we're going to talk about how to live into those principles in each of our lives so that maybe a little bit of that feeling that I felt when Jill said I love you, maybe a little bit of that emotional core that we all have comes into play that much more when we look at the love of God. So that's our invitation for today, and we're going to start by looking at 1 John so that we can better understand 2 and 3 John. That's why Maddie read 1 John for us. The focus of today's text, or today's sermon, is 2nd and 3rd John, because we're going through the sermon series, short books, big questions. The big question for today is, what does it mean to love God? How do we do that? There's a big difference between knowing about God's love and actually loving God. And I find that it's highly appropriate that the scripture has led us to this place, especially this week, after another round of terrible news, of violence, of divisiveness, of places not just in our country but around the world that are desperately in need of the healing and mercy of God. And each of us has a role to play in that. And I think understanding God's love is going to help inform how we step into that in the week ahead. So let's start with the first movement. Or let me share a thesis real quick. God's love in Jesus Christ allows us to love others well, abundantly, faithfully, and wisely. Those are the three headings in your bulletin, abundantly, faithfully, and wisely. Those are the forms that God's love takes, and so we're going to look at each of those in detail. Now, why are we talking about 1 John when the sermon focus is supposed to be about 2 and 3 John? As you may have guessed, John authored 1, 2, and 3 John. Most scholars would also agree that he wrote the Gospel of John as well as Revelation. These documents, these letters, these, these, uh, the Gospel, all of this, is kind of floating around in the church, being shared among this early community around A.D. 90. So this is very, very early on in the life of the church. 
if you've ever been a part of a startup company or a new organization, you have these foundational documents that you come back to. You have these principles. It's kind of like Jerry Maguire's memo. Remember, he dashed that thing out and it changed his whole life. These are the early documents of the Christian church to help them figure out who are we supposed to be? How are we supposed to live? We're looking at 1 John because like so many other parts of the Bible, if we can look at what other what that writer has done in other books, we can better understand what they're doing in the primary book in front of us. So abundant love is the first thing that we come to. How is God's love truly abundant, and how can we love abundantly? And we're going to keep doing this, by the way. We're not just going to use our brains and sort of beat up love and make it intellectual. We're going to try to get into it in a way that really engages the heart. So what do I mean when I say abundance? Our friends over at Webster's define abundance as to abound, to be more than enough, or to be amply sufficient. That's the textbook definition of it. In theology, when we talk about abundance, oftentimes we're talking about the kingdom of God. And we did a whole sermon series on this this winter, but God's kingdom is the place where his rule and reign are absolutely clear right now and in the age to come. So right now, when we see injustice being defeated, when we see slavery ending, when we see women and men being raised out of poverty and given new life, when we see people healed, when we see new life in Christ, people letting down their guard, breaking away from idols and accepting the rule and reign of Jesus, those are moments when the kingdom breaks in now. And the kingdom is coming. John wrote about this in detail in the book of Revelation. There is a time coming when there will be no more tears. There will not be this endless cycle of news that breaks our hearts. There will not be refugees in crisis. There will not be disease and starvation because those things are antithetical to God's abundance. And in the abundant love of God, a rising tide lifts all boats. So the kingdom is what we're hoping for. And if you need something to kind of hang your hat on this week, especially after a tough week, especially after all these news items that keep coming up, remember that the kingdom is coming. And it's not going to be this way forever. And we who follow Jesus Christ get to put our hopes in that and work toward that day when these things end. Now, where do we see abundance in the text today? Uh, We're going to go back to the passage that Maddie read for us, but I would like to read to us from the message translation of it. I found this just to be really helpful this week. So same scripture that Maddie read for us from the message. If you'd like to bring this up in your Bible app, I invite you to do so. 1 John 4, 7 through 10. My beloved friends... Let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. And this is the kind of love that we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage that they've done to our relationship with God. That's a lot. And the big idea I want us to take away from that is that God's love is intensely personal. He loves us in a personal way. We see this when we read, this is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's verse 9. That echoes of John's statement in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is a personal matter to God. And I love this because this defeats some of the ideas of God that are sort of popular in our culture. 
Uh, I remember being in high school and sitting in a European history class and learning about the Enlightenment. And my teacher started to talk about deism or deism, this idea that God is the cosmic watchmaker, right? Like he sets the world in motion and then he just kind of walks away and goes and watches sports center or whatever he chooses to do. And I remember learning about that and going, that can't be right because there's no relationship. There's no relationship in that worldview. God is personally involved in our world, in our community, and we know this because of who he sent. We know this because of how he sent Jesus to reach us. He could have sent doctrine. He could have sent a scroll with a bunch of ideas. He could have given us some precepts, and doctrine's important. He could have sent angels, which he did and continues to do. But he employs them not to be the bearer of his ultimate message. He employs them to be the heralds for the one who is his ultimate message. He put all his chips on the table and he sent his son. He sent his treasure so that we could become his treasure. He came to rescue us by being in relationship with us, by suffering, by taking on sin. It doesn't get much more personal than that. You've got skin in the game if you're sending your own family to achieve these things. So, if it's personal, how do we respond? If God's love is personal, if it is for us, if it is for each of us by name, how do, like, what do we do with that? Back to my friend's question. Like, yeah, what does that mean? How do we love God? I'll share a principle that I share with couples when I do their wedding, and it comes from a, a book that I love about marriage. Actions of love lead to feelings of love over the long haul. If you act in such a way that demonstrates your love for God, for your spouse, for your neighbors, even if you don't have the feeling of love in that moment, you're going to build that feeling over time. Actions of love lead to feelings of love in the long haul. We live in a culture that wants to feel it first and then start acting and then start practicing. Let's try it the other way. Actions of love lead to feelings of love over the long haul. This is not workspace salvation. This is not us saying, I need to act this way. I need to behave a certain way. Otherwise, God won't love me. This is acting in a way that shows that we've received the love of God by demonstrating his love to other people. We need to aim the focus of our love, not just on ourselves, but on others, especially those who aren't like us. This is where I think we can powerfully experience the love of God. So if you aren't a kid, I hope you'll think about serving kids in our children's ministry because I love the challenge of being able to talk to my kids about the love of God and about what we do here. Why do we even get together as a church? It's a great way to kind of shift your thinking so that you focus on someone else and someone else understanding and really grasping the love of God. If you have a home, and most of us do, I think, we need to be loving people who do not have a home. We need to be involved in the lives of those experiencing homelessness. And I am really excited to see where God leads us as we learn more and more about this ministry, New Bethlehem House, just up the road, figuring out ways to serve people and be of service to those who are experiencing homelessness. You can come to Jubilee Reach Serve Day next Saturday. I'll be there with my family. A couple of small groups will also be there. This is generosity that's going to bless a school in Bellevue that needs our help. God lets us bless others like he has infinitely blessed us, and in so doing, his personal love is expressed to our hearts as we do those things so that we get it, so that we feel it. It's not just in our brain, it's in our bodies. It's part of what we are activating in the world. And just like I felt at that pho restaurant with Jill, it brings joy. It brings incredible joy. So I invite you to be a part of that with us as a community. That's the abundant love of God. Now let's talk about the faithful love of God. 
God's love for us, for people who call on him, who are rescued by Jesus Christ is abundant. We've learned about that. Now let's talk about how God's love for us in Jesus Christ allows us to be faithful because he's faithful. The way that I'm using the word faithful here means steady, constant, hanging around for the long haul. Now, we see this in two different places in 2 John, or in 2 John, so I want to invite you to look there with me. I'll read from 2 John 5 and 2 John 6, both from the message translation. It's just a message kind of weed, guys. You're getting a lot of message today. So here's what John writes in 2 John 5. But permit me a reminder, friends, and this is not a new commandment, but simply a repetition of our original and basic charter that we love each other. Our original and basic charter, the thing that we're after at the core, the foundation of the home that God is building in each of our hearts, love each other. That is such a great reminder to me because it reminds me of the simplicity of Jesus' teaching. At its core, the profound but simple message is to love God and to love others. And we will thrive. We will experience God's goodness and blessing and his abundance when we live in those two places. As we've been abundantly loved in Jesus, so are we able to love each other well and to be faithful in that. And this is nothing new. This is not rocket science. Nothing earth-shattering about that. But then you've got to ask yourself, what does it mean to love? Like, what, if God is telling us to do this, what does that mean? First John offered us that great line, God is love. Remember, we read that a moment ago. That statement in and of itself, like, if I could just take time and just sit with that, that'd be good for my heart. God is love. It's amazing, but how does John define love? We see it just in, a, in the next line of, of 2 John. This is 2 John 6 from the message. Love means following his commandments, following God's commandments. And God's unifying commandment is that you conduct your lives in love. This is the first thing that you've heard and nothing has changed. Conduct your lives in love. Follow his commandments. Now, if you're like me, thinking about God's commandments and following those things, you kind of snap back to the Ten Commandments, right? Two big stone tablets. And those are important, but they're actually relatively easy for me to push aside intellectually. Here's why. I didn't kill anybody today. And the day's young. Right? But thou shalt not commit murder. Check that box. I'm good. Not the point of the Ten Commandments, but that's just easy for me to sort of compartmentalize that. What's harder to compartmentalize is when Jesus Christ says things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. What does that look like after Charlottesville? What does that look like to the people in Barcelona this morning? What does it look like to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you when such awful things are going on in our world? It makes me squirm. It makes me uncomfortable. I, I get a little bit of a shiver in me when I think about that calling to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I recognize that there will be a time for that. I think we're, as a country, we're more in a time of grieving and mourning what's happened in Charlottesville and in other places. I don't think we're quite there yet. But we need to be thinking about that if we follow Jesus Christ because he told us to do that. And if we love him, what he told us to do takes priority and precedence over our comfort. And that's not easy to do. How about Jesus' call to leave everything behind, even your family, and follow him? For some of us, it's like, oh, great, leave my family behind? No problem, they're a train wreck, thanks. I can cut that off easily. Uh, that would break my heart to literally do that. And even if I did literally do that, first, my wife would kill me. Secondly, I don't think I would get what Jesus is talking about because that's not the point. The point actually goes back to one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Don't make an idol out of anything. Put Jesus where he belongs in the first place in our hearts. So what do we do with all this? Like, If we are going to be faithful and abiding in the love that God has given to us, if we've received that, if we're going, okay, I want to live faithfully into this, what do we do? Like, How do we put flesh on that? Two things. Make promises and hang out with people in a different age and stage in life than you. Make promises and hang out with people in a different age and stage in life than you. Make promises. We just did that. We all just did that together during the baby dedication. I love that. I love when we unite our voices together and when we say, this kid's going to have every chance to know Jesus Christ, and I'm personally responsible for Zoe, and so are you. And I'm personally responsible for every kid that has come through here that is part of our community, not because it's my job, but because as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I have made a promise. We make promises with our new members. We get up here and we walk through an incredible membership covenant that talks about being accountable to one another, being free to talk about all aspects of our lives together so that we can grow in discipleship. We promise to do that. That's a big deal. It's a big deal to make promises when you get married. And so when we agree to do life together, when we make those promises as a congregation, it ratifies the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is already there. But what we do is we so order, we so conduct our lives, using the word from the text, we conduct our lives in such a way that what we value, what we order our lives around isn't just ourselves and our comfort. It's to be of benefit to others. So make promises as a way to be faithful and then hang out with people in a different age and stage in life than you. This is one of the reasons that I love having elderly people in church, because I'm a young person. I need to be around elderly people. And it's one of the reasons that elderly people, I think, belong in a community like this, so they can speak life into those who are younger than them. And remind those of us who are younger, like, yeah, your kid will not always be five and screaming at you. Like, you'll get through this. It'll be okay. At our church in Colorado, uh, my family and I got to be friends with a wonderful woman named Thelma. Isn't that a great like, old lady church name, Thelma? <laughs> Thelma was wonderful. When we met her, she was in her 90s, and she came to church every week. And because we lived at high elevation and Thelma's lungs were kind of weak, she would wheel in her little cart with the oxygen tank. Have you seen this? doesn't happen a lot around here, but in high elevation, a lot of elderly people need their little oxygen buddy with them. So Thelma would bring in her oxygen buddy, and she'd be in worship every week. Jill came, went over to her house a couple of times. They had lunch together. She gave us the most amazing pie crust recipe ever. And one day, Thelma said to Jill, you should come with me to my prayer group. And Jill said, sure. So Thelma would meet with, I think it was about six or eight little old ladies at our church. And these saints would greet each other, and they'd give each other big old hugs, and they'd sit around the table, and they prayed, not for themselves. They prayed for our church. They prayed for our city. They prayed for leaders, for the staff of our church, and they prayed for pastors. And so for my wife to go there and sit around with women that were in their 80s and 90s and hear them praying for her husband and for the ministry that I've been called to do there, that was remarkable. That left a deep impression on both of our lives. And one of my great joys in seeing our community here develop more and more is I'm seeing more and more young people connect with older people just to go have coffee, just go hang out. And that's what I want to encourage us then. If you are more seasoned and wise in your life, I want to invite you to take someone younger out to coffee. If you're younger, I want you to go up and ask someone older and wiser than you to hang out with you. 
Doesn't matter what your agenda is, just go be a part of that fellowship together and learn that faithfulness, learn that rhythm of like, man, you're telling me you've read the Psalms every day for 20 years? That's incredible. Maybe I should start practicing that. It's an incredible way for those of us who are younger to learn. It's an incredible way for those of us who are older to remember and to bless those who are younger and to be blessed by that interaction as well. That's faithfulness. Thelma showing up to pray with her buddies was faithfulness, and it changed the life of our congregation. Each of you is practicing faithfulness by showing up for worship today. Good job. Thank you for faithfully giving to our mission and ministry as a church. I hope that you all practice faithfulness next week by coming to worship together at Newport High School and the week after that by worshiping at Paradise. And I understand it's a busy time. People are out of town. If you're in town, I really hope you'll be there. And I get the questions. I get the what will my kids do? Where will we park? All that kind of thing. Why not just come? Why not just live into this rhythm of faithfully worshiping together, even if our home here at Peter Kirk isn't available to us? And by the way, if you don't come, we're still cool. Like, we can still hang out. It's good. It's not my style to, you know, go, ah, you've been so unfaithful. Jeez. Don't worry about that. But if you're in town, I hope you'll come to Newport. I hope you'll come to Paradise so that we can keep this up, this faithful rhythm of being together as the people of God. And I think when we do, we will marvel at what God does in our community. So, abundant, faithful. Now let's very briefly talk about love that is wise. A great definition of wisdom that I'm borrowing from a pastor I admire is wisdom is knowing what to do when the normal rules don't apply. It's knowing what to do, knowing how to live in such a way that reflects the power and might of God when the usual rules don't apply. And so two things are required of wisdom when we're pursuing love. We need to seek the truth and walk in in the truth. This comes to us in the text. But as we get into that, I want to share another really quick note about John's context. Go back to the author of the letter. He's writing these letters during the early days of the church. And even though the church was relatively new, even though it had only been a couple of generations since Jesus' resurrection, there was already stuff starting to get into the waters that was a problem. There were already these competing theologies, these weird variations on Jesus that just, they weren't right. And they weren't going to lead people into faith and discipleship. They were going to tear people apart. And so one of those uh, is known as Gnosticism. And if you've studied the Bible, you may know a little bit about this. Gnosticism is kind of the ancestor of dualism. Dualism being everything that's spiritual is awesome and everything that's physical stinks. Like literally, like all you're supposed to do is pursue spiritual stuff. Don't waste your time on caring for the physical world. It's all going to go away anyways. That's dualism. That's not Christianity. And what the Gnostics believed, and this comes up in the text, is that they said Jesus was only God. We can't claim that he was human. And what Orthodox Christianity believes is that somehow the math doesn't work, but the reality does. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human. And the Gnostics said, no, that can't be, because if you have flesh, if, you're, you know, if you have a body, that's bad. So they came into churches, they were teaching this, and I know it feels like splitting hairs, but think about it. In the early days of the life of a community that's on mission, if you start to dilute something really important about that community's identity, the whole, whole thing starts to fall apart. So some scholars think that this is what John's referring to whenever he talked about deceivers, and that's the word that comes up in 2 John 7. Let me read that for us real quick. 2 John 7, this is a harsh word. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, and those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, we have movies about antichrist. What he means here is actually something very serious and very significant. It's anything that works against what God is trying to do. Like anti-venom removes the power of venom to kill you, calling someone the antichrist in this context meant you're doing something to walk the faith backwards. That's not good. The author warns the people here and elsewhere to seek the truth because the truth will actually bring life. And anything that's not the truth only brings death. Similar usage of the term you can find in 1 Peter 5.8. Peter's warning his congregation to be faithful. And he says this, Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Discipline yourselves is related to that word from 2 John Eight, be watchful, be on your guard. Be on your guard for what? Stuff that just doesn't smell right. It doesn't feel right. It's like, I don't think this is quite in line with what Jesus desired. When we know what the truth is, we can better identify what it's not. And this is where the church plays a huge role in this, where community really informs this. Now, I will be the first to admit, churches have gotten the truth wrong a lot. Like, don't even get me started. There are so many different ways, even today, that what some churches teach, I I think we're pretty good about this at Bethany, what we teach is truthful. And I know that there are places where that is not the case. But we can know the truth, and what I want to give to us just in this moment is just a few sort of safety valves as we think about the truth, as we think about aligning ourselves with that in order to pursue the love of God. And they're really quick. Scripture, community, civility, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. So scripture, personally devoting ourselves to the study of scripture, reading scripture and worship, really listening to it, really soaking it in, hearing it taught faithfully, digesting it in our groups, it helps us have an ear for the truth, like someone who's a musician will have an ear for an out-of-tune piano. If you know when you're hearing the truth, you know it because you've heard it elsewhere, and that comes to us through the scriptures. Community is a big part of how we understand the truth because community can actually help us achieve this thing called objectivity. None of us has the ability to be truly objective about how things are going in our lives because we're in the middle of it. But when we're a part of a community, they can say to us, the people in our group, the people in our neighborhood, I think this is a little bit weird and I just want to talk to you about this. Community is also where we can practice the much-needed discipline of civility, which our world needs us desperately to take the lead on. We need prayer. We need to ask God, God, I'm hearing this. I listened to this podcast. I listened to this preacher that I don't really know. Is this truthful? Did did what I hear line up with what you desire? Am I hearing this correctly? And I would also say we need to be alone and we need to listen for the Holy Spirit. We need solitude where the Spirit can speak to us and, and press into us what the Spirit desires. These are all ways to seek the truth. And the truth is our pathway into deeper and deeper love with God. We are able to seek it and walk in it when we seek the truth. Now here's an irony, and I'll say this as we wrap up. Not even John was getting this quite right. And I'm not saying what John wrote is wrong. No, not at all. If you read 3 John, the very end of 3 John, he talks about three different relationships that have gotten messy for him. Two of them are going good, one of them is not going good. So John's ability to walk in the truth and to love others well and to kind of live into our thesis abundantly, faithfully, wisely, he didn't get it right every time because he's a person just like you and me. And so what we need and what I think the scriptures are calling us to do is to kind of take a look 
at our lives, at our relationships, and do an audit. And so I want to invite you to reflect with me, and I'm going to do a little diagram for us to help us with this. So if you have your bulletin, grab a pen, and this will be a time of reflection. Draw three circles with me, please. In the outer circle, just want you to write, I don't know. The next circle in, you can write, I kind of know. These are technical terms. And the very center, I want you to write, I'm known. Take a minute and write that. The truth is that none of us can know with certainty how we're doing in any of our relationships. We, we can't. Because we're too close to the action, but this can help us, I think, get closer to the truth of how we're actually doing as we relate to one another. Are we able to do this love of God, this calling to be people who love faithfully and abundantly and wisely? And so the outer level, the I don't know, is the relationships that we have with people that we don't know. So I'm thinking of people that I see in the media. I'm thinking of people who write things online. I'm thinking of my heroes, people I admire from afar, or people who are dead, like authors I really admire. And I'm thinking of people who show up and participate in things that are abhorrent to God. I'm thinking of the relationship that I have, that you have, with people who said, I'm going to go march in Charlottesville, and I'm going to wave a flag with a symbol of hate on it. I'm going to go tell people that other races are better than other races, that one race is better than other races. That is not Christianity. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I passionately disagree with that, and yet to say that I'm not in relationship with those people isn't true. Because we all are, through citizenship, through being in the same country together, through being connected however we're connected. By and large, I wouldn't say that I'm in a lot of relationships with white supremacists, but I am called to consider how I would be in relationship if I ever do meet someone of that perspective. How am I doing in those relationships with people I don't know? The next circle is people that I kind of know. So at my house, uh, we're still kind of working on getting to know our neighbors. So I'd put my neighbors in that circle, like I kind of know my neighbors. Maybe uh, someone you work with, you've nailed it, you've gotten down their name, but you only know like one other thing about them. Like that's a person that I would put into the I kind of know category. And this is okay, right? Like we operate in all these different spheres of relationship, and it's fine to have people that we kind of know. And finally, the inner circle should be a very small group of people. It's where you and I are known and loved people with whom we're deeply vulnerable, who know our stuff and say, yeah, I know about your addictions. I know how hard it is to love you sometimes, but I love you. Those are the people who know us at our core. I want to invite us to reflect on these categories, and I'm just going to give us a couple of questions related to these three themes. I really want us to take a moment and just hold these things out to God. I don't know, I kind of know, I'm known. And here are the questions. Can I think of a moment in any of these relationships when I've experienced the abundant love of God? 
when I've seen God's love transform someone's life? Or could I start praying for that in someone's life? Have I been faithful to the relationships that I have in one of these circles? Have I showed up? Have I been there for my neighbors? And finally, how is wisdom being built between myself and the people in each of these circles? Is there something I can learn? Is there some element of the truth that I can offer respectfully and kindly and with grace to each of these circles? I'm going to invite the band uh, to come join me up here. And as they come, I want us to continue our time and reflection. I want to offer this final thought about the gospel. To reveal the truth of how broken we are and how loved we are is something that only Jesus can do. And so as you think about these different circles, I'll leave this up here so you can reflect on it as we sing, as we pray, as we finish our time together in worship. I want us to just hold that truth. We are more broken than we could ever imagine. Each of us will fail in each of these circles, but we are more loved than we could ever fathom. And the love of God that sends our heart fluttering is abundant and faithful and wise. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God to increase his love in and among us. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we want to know you and we need our minds to do that, but we also want to love you and we need our hearts to do that. And so in your incredible, infinite wisdom and mercy, would you take this really simple diagram and these really simple moments of reflection and draw us into a deep place where we can ask those questions or any questions that you want us to really answer about how we're loving people in each of these corners of our lives, about whether we're falling short. I pray especially, God, that for those of us who look at that inner circle where we say, I'm known, where I'm loved, I'm accepted, and if we're finding that, that there maybe aren't that many people in that circle, or maybe there are no people in that circle, God, that you would touch those folks who experience that even now and bring your healing. Bring us into deeper and deeper experiences of community through your grace. We continue to pray, God, for all the corners of our world where there is hatred and divisiveness and racism, where there are all these things that are appalling to you. The only way we're going to be able to enter in and be agents of healing is when we recognize in humility how broken we are and how in coming to the table and coming to reach out to those with whom we disagree with on many things, that your grace and your truth can be present in a powerful way. Thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world full of grace and truth. We need both. Use us now as we rise, as we unite our voices together to bring glory to yourself and bring depth to our hearts as we seek to love you well. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue in our worship. Thank you.